Well, at the end of this July, our family got to visit the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. We went with our boys, 12U baseball team. There was a tournament there. And so one of the days we got to go to the Hall of Fame. And as a lifelong baseball fan, it was, it was kind of surreal to stand on those sacred grounds, all the stuff about Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron. Maybe you, I expected it to be bigger, but it was built in the 1940s or 50s. It's a bit smaller than you might expect. And there's the amazing plaque gallery at the end with the high ceilings where you walk through and you can see the, the metallic faces of all the members of the Hall of Fame. One thing I did not realize about Cooperstown until this year is how far off the beaten path it is. It's not close to New York City. It's not like it's near LA or Orlando or Las Vegas where the tourists are already gathered and so they can just kind of add this onto their stop as they do many things throughout the day. You don't just happen upon the Baseball Hall of Fame. You go out of your way to upstate New York, four hours north of Manhattan. You go away from the big city and all its distractions to this little small town, smaller than my wife's hometown of Aiken, Minnesota. Just 1,700 people in Cooperstown. You get away from normal life so that you can stand in awe of these larger than life figures who did what honestly very few of us could do. Now, sometimes we hear Hebrews 11 talked about as the faith hall of fame. And I think that could really give us a misconception about what's going on in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is not like the baseball hall of fame. It is not a remote gallery that you visit to get away from normal life and to gawk at inimitable greats. Rather, Hebrews 11 takes normal humans who had bunches of flaws, but they had faith in the true God and it presses their stories into our lives. It presses their stories into the service of our real troubles of our real challenges to endure in faith. So Hebrews 11 is no mere record of Israel's history. Rather, it's Israel's history pressed into the service of helping us to endure, persevere in our faith. And we're living in times when we especially need this. We need examples and encouragements to help us endure in the faith and to keep believing. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is the rhetorical climax of this book of Hebrews, which is like a sermon in letter form. So Hebrews 11 is like the best part of the sermon. It's like the amen part. We get right at the top and you're circling around, you're saying the same thing over and over, amen, amen. Let the amen sound from its people again. And Hebrews 11 is leading to this highest part, the very pinnacle, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where Jesus is the climactic example of the man of faith. And he's the author and perfecter of our faith. So as we go all throughout Hebrews chapter 11, you're not just on your own for perseverance. There's an author and perfecter. We'll get to him as the high point. There's an author and perfecter to help with our endurance and faith. 
And along the way in Hebrews chapter 11, as we get this by faith history of Israel, Hebrews kind of pauses the narrative at four spots and makes what you might call editorial comments. He does it very quickly in verses 32 and 38. And then we saw it last week in verse 6, where he kind of pauses and pulls back the curtain. He says, hey, this is what I'm doing. But the most significant editorial comment is verses 13 to 16. This is significant. It's the longest one. It's the most important. It's the very heart of our passage this morning from verses 8 to 22. And in some ways, it's the heart of chapter 11. This is when Hebrews stops and says, here's what I'm doing in the whole chapter. Don't miss this. This is it. Verses 13 to 16. And there's three main realities in verses 13 to 16. One, obviously, faith. Two, obedience. How does obedience relate to faith? And then third, this idea of being strangers in this world. All three of these are related, faith and obedience and being strangers. And so the way that this chapter is set up by drawing us into Noah's life, Moses's, Abraham's, Sarah's, it leads us to ask questions that are not just realities to state and define, but to ask questions like, what's it like to have faith? What's the experience of faith like? Or what's it like to obey from faith? Not just to obey, grunting, gritting our teeth and exercising our willpower, but what is, like, what is it like to obey from faith? Or what's it like to live as strangers and exiles who are seeking a homeland other than the homeland into which you were born or which you currently live? And so that's a very experiential focus, and that's a risk. That's what we want to look at this morning. Three questions. What's it like to have saving faith? And what's it like to obey from faith? And what's it like to live in this world as strangers and exiles who are seeking a homeland? We'll start with verse 13 in the first half. This is number one. What's it like to have saving faith? Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Dot, dot, dot. We'll come back to verse 13. Last week, Pastor Jonathan noted that maybe we have in verse 1 of Hebrews 11, the closest thing in the New Testament to like a definition of faith. However, He doesn't just skip straight to Jesus. The chapter keeps going. So instead of just a definition, Hebrews doesn't just move on to the next thing, but he keeps showing us faith from one angle after another. If you were to say, okay, what does this chapter say about the nature of faith? What's it like to have faith? You will find various angles all throughout this chapter of this many splendored reality of saving faith. But the first part of verse 13 has a particularly important contribution to make. Verse 13, faith 
Two things here at the beginning of the verse. Faith sees God's promises from afar and greets them. Very important for the nature of saving faith. Last Sunday, we saw this emphasis on faith as seeing what has not yet been visible. You see things that are invisible through faith. Faith hears the promises of God and sees them with the soul. Faith sees them with the eyes of the heart. Faith sees spiritually what we cannot yet fully see or see with the physical eyes. There's a kind of distance that is bridged by faith. And because this seeing is a response to hearing God's promises, faith is tied repeatedly in this chapter to receiving. Have you seen that language again and again? End of chapter 10, all throughout chapter 11. In our passage, verses 8, 11, 13, 19, 17. Faith receives. And so uh, Baptist theologian from 200 years ago, Andrew Fuller, talked about faith as a peculiarly receiving grace. It's not a doing grace. It's not a performing grace. Faith doesn't merit God's favor. Rather, faith receives God's favor. And faith sees his favor in a particular way. It sees what's invisible or distant. And faith not only sees it, but greets it. This is the word greet. Same word throughout the New Testament for when two people love each other dearly and have been apart for a long time and they come back together, they greet each other. So they welcome each other or embrace or even kiss. That's the language of greeting here. Faith, we might say, receives with delight, not with disgust or disinterest. It's very important. Faith is not mere assent to truths, but a warm embrace of God and his promises. And so in the language of verse six, faith looks to a reward, something desirable. Verse 10, faith looks forward to the heavenly city. Verse 16, faith desires a better country that is the heavenly one. And the whole point of the chapter is that saving faith perseveres. It keeps seeing, keeps greeting, keeps looking forward, keeps desiring, keeps tasting in the moment of the fullness of what's to come in the future. So then, what's it like to have saving faith? What might we say about the experience of faith? On the one hand, to live according to faith is not to have all the promises yet. Once you have all the promises, you no longer live by faith. Then it's called living by sight. Faith in its very nature has a discontentment with the present. It's not content with the here and now. And faith also has a foretaste of the goodness of God's promises. So faith hears God's word and sees him as true with the eyes of the soul and embraces him as desirable. 
Saving faith is not indifferent to what it sees or apathetic toward, toward who God is, what he's done, and what he said. But rather, in faith itself is a kind of eagerness, a kind of desire, a thirst to drink, a hunger to be fed, a foretaste of the satisfaction that's to come fully in the future. And so, as Jonathan said last Sunday, faith says to God, I want you. I don't simply believe that you exist, but I'm kind of indifferent to it. It's not faith. Faith says, I want you. And saving faith perseveres. It keeps wanting. Just a very quick word here, practically. Self-evaluation question. How are you conditioning your soul with your habits, patterns, rhythms of life, the liturgies? Mike talked about liturgy. The liturgies of your life. How are you conditioning your soul for indifference to God or delight in Him? It's one way to think about the habits of our life. Gathering here on Sundays, Bible, prayer, entertainment, what we do, all that we do in our life. We're always becoming who we will be. With everything we engage in, we are conditioning our souls. Ask yourself about your lifestyle. Am I conditioning my soul to delight in God? Or am I conditioning my soul for indifference to Him? You may say, right now, I've got delight in God. I enjoy Him. I want Him. But everything in your life is conditioning your soul for indifference. And you may not delight in Him a year from now or five years from now if you have conditioned yourself for apathy. And so faith, in verse 13, sees God's promises from afar and greets them and continues to want them, which leads to our second what's it like question. Number two, what's it like to obey from faith? And we ask this because verses 8 to 12 and verses 17 to 22 tell us about observable external acts undertaken by faith. So Abraham obeyed when he went out and lived in a foreign land. Sarah received power to conceive and she gave birth. Abraham reached for the knife to sacrifice his beloved son of promise. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph had not their own personal inheritance because they're living by faith. So they invoke future blessings on their offspring and they give future directions because they don't yet have their homeland. So having some working sense of the experience of faith What's it like to obey, to act, to live by faith? And this chapter and this section in particular is amazing for the glimpse that it gives us into the what it's like of obeying by faith. So we're going to look at Abraham, Sarah, and come back to Abraham quickly in verses 8, 9, 10, 11. Look first at Abraham's first obedience in verses 8 and 9. So 8 and 9 will tell us that he obeyed. And then verse 10 is going to give us the peek 
into how it was obedience from faith. Look at verses eight and nine. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So God had said to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse one, go from your country and your kindred, all your comfortable familial and familiar stuff. And from your father's house to the land that I will show you, And Abraham obeyed God's command. But this is very important. God didn't only command obedience. God made promises. He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's amazing. Leave the comforts of your family and kindred and country. And in you, I'll bless all the families. So this is not just command and obey. This is command and promise leading to faith, leading to obedience. So verse 10 is gonna tell us how it happens. I love Hebrews, so good. How did faith lead Abraham to obey? What was it like for him in his soul? Verse 10 begins with four. It's because, it's gonna, it's gonna take, show us how. This is how it happens. Abraham obeyed because he was looking forward. That's faith. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So in other words, God didn't just command it and Abraham obeyed it. Willpower, God said it, just do it. But God made commands and he gave promises. And Abraham looked forward. That is, he believed God's promises. He saw a better future through faith and that led him to obey. We, we use this lame, the same language of looking forward. We, still, we use it this way still today. When we talk about looking forward to something, we're talking about something that's coming in the future. And it's not something we're indifferent to. It's not like, oh, I'm very apathetic and I'm looking forward to it. Like, no, when you look forward to something, you want it. You desire it. You're anticipating it's going to be enjoyable, delightful. It's going to be better. That's how this is Abraham. He sees something better by faith and obeys. Now, Sarah, verse 11. The first part of verse 11 is what Sarah, how Sarah obeyed or her, her obedience. And the last part is how she did it. How did faith inform obedience? Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So her obedience is on the surface very different than Abraham's, right? He goes out, he lives in a foreign land, he stays there. Of course, he brings Sarah with. Sarah obeys by welcoming God's work in her, in her womb. 
and preparing at age 90 to finally have a child and nurture a child in pregnancy and give birth and nurse and raise the child, all sorts of small and big obediences to bring a child in the world and do so at age 90. And how did her obedience come from faith? This word considered in verse 11, this is so important. You will see it again in verse 19 with Abraham. We're gonna see it next week with Moses. In verse 26, that idea of considering is so important for obeying from faith and how faith gives rise to obedience. And put it this way, there's a very natural course of action in the world, apart from faith. 90 year old women don't prepare to have babies, but faith, Here's a promise and considers. It does not simply move like natural humans through the world according to the world's patterns. God's promises come and faith receives them. And then faith looks forward to them and it changes how we live. We move to another place and live in a different way because our eyes have been opened to something better. We open our arms to receive a child or we release the grasp of our fingers later on on that child, as we'll see with Abraham in just a few minutes. So Sarah heard the promises of God, just like Abraham did, and she too considered God to be faithful. It's an inward calculation of mind and heart. Having heard the promises, she considered him faithful. And she believed that God would do what he said. And she desired that he would do it and that it would be better. And so she acted differently. She obeyed. Faith changed how she lived. And then now back to Abraham. Last example here under number two. This is verses 17 to 18, which tell us about his obedience. And then verse 19 tells us how it happened. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, there it is again, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, like Sarah, Abraham considered. Naturally speaking, it made no sense to offer up Isaac. How could the offspring come through Isaac if Isaac was dead? Answer, God could raise him. God had promised Abraham offspring and God had said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. And so Abraham journeys, he's got two young men that come with them. And so at the point of departure, when he's about to go off with Isaac, he tells the two young men, just Genesis 22, five, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there 
to the place where the altar is, and worship, and he says, and we will come again to you. Abraham would obey, and he believed that God would provide the rescue or resurrection for Isaac. And so again, faith leads to obedience. Faith takes God at his word. Faith considers his truthfulness, his faithfulness, and his goodness. That what he offers is better than what natural human life has to offer in this world. And faith leads us to act differently than we would without it. So summarize it here. What's it like to obey from faith? In short, we see something better than the world does. And we act accordingly. We hear God's promises. And then we consider differently than unbelievers. Our minds and hearts do a different calculus. We don't just float through life, taking its givens, doing its next things according to the patterns of the world. We don't just see and do the next thing. We see, we stop. We see with the eyes of faith and then act by faith. So for Christians, that line... Everyone else is doing it. It's not a good rationale for doing it. Nor is it necessarily a rationale for doing the opposite. But it's a chance for us to pause and ask for wisdom. Given my true home is elsewhere. And given my new desires, what is obedience in this situation? So faith gives us a foretaste of God's promises and our souls consider the world and consider life differently and we obey from the heart. And then finally, what's it like to live as strangers? And now we finish up with the rest of verses 13 to 16. We already saw in verses nine to 10 that Abraham went to live in a foreign land For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And now we learn more. Look again at verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So, Men and women of faith not only see God's promises from afar and welcome God's promises, but he also says they acknowledge. Literally here it's confess. They confess themselves to be strangers and exiles on the earth. Make no mistake, faith makes them strangers. They are strangers. To hear God's promises and embrace them is to be a stranger in that respect. They are not of the world. 
when they embrace his promises. But they may say differently, act differently. And Hebrews says here, these examples of faith acknowledge that they're different. They confess it. They recognize it. They say it. And verse 14 says that people like that, let's call them Christians. People like that make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. They're not at home in this world. They don't expect to be. They don't pretend to be. This age and its patterns and its assumptions are no longer theirs. They are Christians. And by definition, they seek a homeland other than the one into which they were born and other than the one in which they presently live. By definition. In verse 15, Hebrews looks his audience right in the eye, if you can do that in a letter. This is it. This is look you in the eye of Hebrews 11 to the audience. Verse 15, he puts his finger right on the connection between their situation and Abraham's. Hebrews readers, because of social pressure in their Jewish community, they are tempted to go back to Judaism apart from Jesus. And so Hebrews says about these examples of faith, if they had been thinking, considering, remembering that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But they didn't. Your hero, Abraham, didn't. They didn't reminisce about the past. They didn't dwell on their former life before God spoke and they believed. They didn't constantly consider the old and pine for the other. For them, the first audience, the return would have been to Judaism. For us, what might that be? And I doubt any here sitting this morning contemplating a return to Judaism. What is that for us? What's the return? What have you come out from that you might be tempted to go back to? Now, maybe one way would be to say it would be normal, modern American life. It would be a big general way to say it. And to them and to us, Hebrews says, don't go back. Don't settle for an earthly homeland when God has prepared a better city. In Christ, the best is ahead, not behind. Don't let nostalgia play tricks on you. God has prepared a better place for you, a new Jerusalem, a better city, a better country that is to come, the heavenly one that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So what's it like to live as strangers and exiles. Simply, our hearts are not at home in this world. God has lit a flame of faith in our souls and we no longer want all the same things the world wants. We no longer do all the same things the world does. 
We're not at home with its movies and its shows and its ads. What it affirms and what it denies, its values, its priorities, its proportions, its distractions, its investments of attention, its ways of talking, its dreams, its topics, its ways of using technology. We do not think and feel and act like everyone else. Or do we? Now, the answers to the subtle ethical challenges of living in the world and not being of the world are not easy. You do best to answer them for yourself and not for others. The reason there's challenges is because we overlap as humans. We eat, believers and non-believers. We sleep, we love and nurture, we exercise, we work, we rest. But now it's all different. And yet so much of it still looks similar. So if you ask, how do I live as a stranger and exile in this luxurious 21st century American life? Wisdom requires walking intentions, not reaching for easy fixes or simplistic compromise. Just compromise all the way down, just like the world, all the way down. Or simplistic separation, separation all the way down. The answers in wisdom, in wisdom questions, the answers are often not in absolutes, but in proportions and in the rhythms of our lives and in how we're conditioning our souls. Are you conditioning your soul for delighting God or conditioning your soul for indifference to him? And what Hebrews 11 makes unmistakable is that the Christian faith is not a layer that you add on to your old life of unbelief, but it is a new life from the inside out. And it's joy enough to obey and joy enough to confess you're a stranger. Let me end with that amazing statement in verse 16. Maybe this caught your ear as Dan read it. Maybe not. So those who, are, those who have saving faith are not those who return to where they came from, but they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Verse 16. Therefore, verse 16 says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's strange language. God is not ashamed to be called their God. I can't think of anywhere else in scripture that talks about God being ashamed or not ashamed. It's just not a very typical expression. So what could Hebrews mean by God not being ashamed? God never does anything shameful. God is never rightfully shameful. So what is Hebrews communicating by saying that God is not ashamed to be called our God if we have such faith? What's the opposite of shame? 
Honor. We're going to talk about shame and honor cultures. Honor is the opposite of shame. So put it like this. For those who desire the heavenly city, God is honored to be their God. Don't you want that? None of us want to bring shame to our God, as if that were possible, to bring shame to our God by our lives. And in the end, you won't bring shame to God by your life. Because if you abandon the faith, you will show that he was not your God. He won't be ashamed, literally. But he will be honored. He will be honored by those who take him at his word and welcome his promises and embrace his son and confess themselves to be strangers and exiles on the earth. And they desire a better country, a better land, a better city than human hands and constitutions can make. And not only is that desire an aspect of faith, but that desire honors God. He's honored by people who are not indifferent to him or apathetic to him, but who want him. He is honored by souls that seek him, embrace him, welcome him, desire him. And so, in effect, he says this, dare to put a paraphrase in his mouth. I am honored to be their God because they desire me not their world with all its empty promises. They seek a fatherland, a home with me, not on earth. They see me and my city from afar and they greet it, welcome it, embrace it, kiss it. They want me and that honors me. They enjoy me and that glorifies me. No, I am not ashamed to be their God. I am honored by such hearts and they will not be disappointed. That's the last part of verse 16. We desire a heavenly city and it's not like we're gonna desire it and then find out God didn't have it. No, no, no. You will not be disappointed because he has prepared that city and he's prepared a better table than the world has on offer. And so we come to this table with that kind of faith, a desiring faith. We do not come with indifference or with apathy or with disinterest. It's not what you do when you come to the table to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not indifferent. I want to eat. We come here seeking satisfaction. We come desiring God and his city. We come embracing his son and cherishing his Isaac-like and Isaac-surpassing sacrifice for our sins. So in faith, we see the crucified and risen Jesus from afar and we greet him. We welcome him. We receive his good news as not only true, but as good We come to eat and drink in faith and satisfy our souls in him.